0: This is episode 262 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 150 additional episodes not available anywhere else when you join us as a patron on patreon.com slash Shakespeare Life.
1: Hi. Hi, I'm David Parlett. I'm a card game inventor and historian. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. They're afraid of the noise. In their petition, they mentioned the noise from the drums and trumpets that will disturb divine service at the nearby church, at the nearby parish church. So the sort of noise pollution they're worried about. These same complaints that basically all revolve around issues of of civic order, they're all repeated in the later petitions. What these petitions don't say, and this is really interesting, they they don't object to theatre on religious grounds. They don't say theatre is morally corrupting, theatre is degenerate. Or it's Satan's work. It, you know, does Satan's work? They don't. They don't talk about this at all.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: Prior to Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries in 1538, the section of London, known as Blackfriars, was a major religious institution extending along the bank of the Thames River. In its entirety, Blackfriars was second in size only to St. Pearl's churchyard. After the Reformation, Blackfriars was located in what's known as a liberty, which meant it was just outside the reach of mayoral law. Being outside this jurisdiction made Blackfriars especially attractive to entrepreneurs like the Burbage's and their star writer, William Shakespeare, who wanted to open a theater in this section of town. Blackfriars wasn't only attractive to innovative theater professionals, though, it was also attractive to immigrants and the highly religious who were seeking freedom from the regulation of guilds. At the time that Shakespeare and the Burbages were looking at Blackfriars as a home for their theater, the parish of St. Anne's Blackfriars was dominated by godly clergy and parishioners, the people we usually think of as enemies of the theater. Here today to explain to us how Blackfriars Theatre came to be, how it was able to not only survive, but to thrive in this section of London, is our guest, Chris Hiley. Christopher Hiley is professor of English and the director for the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at The Ohio State University, where he has taught since 1991. Chris, who grew up near Manchester in the northwest of England, was an undergraduate student at the University of Sussex and a graduate student at USC and Stanford. He is the author of the monograph Blackfriars in Early Modern London, Theater, Church, and Neighborhood, put out by Oxford University Press in 2022. He joins us today to share with us his research into this monograph and to talk to us about exactly what he learned in putting all this together. See more of Chris's work and links to his publications in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Chris. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life.
1: Hello, Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me.
0: With other sections of the city available to them, what made Shakespeare and the Burbages find Blackfriars so attractive? I mean, we know that they had these freedoms afforded because they were outside the reach of the mayor, but was that their only draw to this section or were there other socioeconomic forces at work here?
1: Well, I think, first of all, it it might be good just to fill in the background as to why the Burbages are even contemplating a new venue, as it were, so remember that in the middle of the 1590s, the um, Burbages and the Chamberlain's Men, their theatre is up in Shoreditch, north of the city. It's called The Theatre. Um, the Burbages actually own the structure itself, but they don't own the land on which the is built. And the, the lease on that land is running out. It's due to run out in 1597. So the Burbages aren't... Desperately negotiating with the landlord to renew the lease. Now, it might be the case that when they secured, when they bought the Blackfriars rooms, that they were actually, the Burbages were actually contemplating having two venues. In other words, staying at the theatre under a new lease and also having a much smaller enclosed indoor site in the heart of the city. And I think that is the reason. Why they choose Blackfriars for this uh, indoor venue is that it is right in the heart of city, the most built up, the most populated part of the metropolis. And there's you know many advantages to this. First of all, you've got a ready-made audience. To the uh, west of Blackfriars, you have the uh, Inns of Court. There are 12 Inns of Court and Chancery, full of young men aged between early teens and early 20s who are looking for entertainment, right on the doorstep of this new theatre. It's also easily accessible. The Blackfriars location, easily accessible either by a street. So if you're w- walking from the west, coming along Fleet Street, then through Ludgate, there are also plenty of places where you can drop people off if they're coming in coach, but also easily accessible from the river. We know a lot of people would have crossed to the, uh, the bank side by a ferries or wherries. And so anyone coming from further afield, maybe from Westminster, could easily take a, a riverboat and be dropped off at Blackfriars' stairs. So accessibility, I think, is a big issue. Now, the thing about the, the freedoms and the liberties of, of Blackfriars and whether they were in some sense adv- advantageous to the Burbages, you've got to remember that, OK, so technically in, in a liberty, Before 1608, the residents, business owners, they had certain privileges and rights that people living outside of liberties under the control of the men didn't have. In other words, they had to pay fewer taxes and there were certain civic duties and responsibilities that residents in liberties didn't have to pay. However, it's wrong to think of a liberty like the Blackfriars as kind of an authority free zone where you could escape the gaze of Authority because it was very much a self-governing enclave. Blackfriars Liberty was really governed by the leading residents, the gentry, the elite members of the community. And there were, there were many of those in the Blackfriars because it was a very desirable place to live. We've talked about its location, its good access points. It's closed both to the, the city and to the core in the West. There was a governing structure, all right? And you also got to remember that the theatre, whether it's an indoor theatre like the Blackfriars or it's a public amphitheatre, is also governed by the court. So the Privy Council, for example, have a big say in when theatres can be built, uh, how many theatres there are allowed to be in and around London. And then we also have the court officials, the Lord Chamberlain, And the Master of the Revels, who also regulate both the operation of theatres and, of course, plays themselves. So it's not as though the Burbages are thinking of Blackfriars as a place they can just go and do whatever they want.
0: I'm really glad you pointed out that it's not this just free zone of behavior, because I think especially for us here in the United States, when we hear of a liberty section outside the reach of the law, the image that comes to mind is like the Wild West or a town that doesn't have a sheriff, you know, and this is this is what you think of. And it's really more of I mean, I think a a good parallel or metaphor would be like an HOA in a in a subdivision where you have this governing body, but it's made up of the people who who live in that situation, where they are, there are these rules that you have to follow. I really appreciate that distinction. I think it's, it's a good parallel to realize it's not just a "You could do whatever you like over here."
1: I could just add there that, it, that the liberties it enjoys after the Reformation, they're basically a continuation of the liberties that the friary enjoyed, the ecclesiastical these are basically ecclesiastical liberties which live on, continue after the, the place has lost its religious function.
0: So what was the building where they were trying to create a theater? I mean, did this space come up for sale and create this opportunity? I mean, you're mentioning it's, it was a highly religious section of, of London. Was this previously a church? And now, why, why is it no longer a church? What happens for it to be for sale for use as a theater?
1: Well, it's called the Black Friars. So before the Reformation, it had been a friary. Or a priory, it was no longer. It no longer had any religious function at the Reformation. Hen- Henry VIII had granted the the land and the property there to several prominent figures. The most important being a man called Sir Thomas Carden, who was in fact was Elizabeth I's first uh, master of the Revels. So he had theatrical connections. But Thomas Carden is the one. Who um, inherited most uh, most of the property? So it's this it's this huge stone multi-storey building. If you think of the layout of you know a friary, a priory, even a monastery, but we, we're not talking about a monastery, different entity, but similar, often similar layout with cloisters. Okay, so so that these these buildings are organised around. In case of the Blackfriars, three cloisters stacked one on top of each other, going from north to south, and the cloisters, the open space the green space surrounded by these multi-storey stone-built structures. And so the particular part of the friary that the, the, the theatre is, is built into is, is the Western Range. So it's the range running from north to south, and it's in a, on an upper floor. The main, the main rooms, the seven great rooms as they're referred to in the indenture, the indenture between the Burbage's and uh, Carden's Air. A man called Sir William Moore, the indenture survives, the contract survives, and the actual rooms, their location, their size are very clearly delineated, stipulated. So there are seven grade upper rooms. Then there are uh, staircases. There are sort of, there are cellars, there are kitchens, there are outside yards, which are all part of this of this deal. Now, we don't know how the Burbages came to negotiate this deal, no how they found out these, this space was available but they're buying these rooms outright they're not leasing them from more and they're paying 600 pounds which is an awful lot of money
0: you have to think their situation at the theater motivated the the desire to want to buy it outright and not get into another lease arrangement
1: i would that's a good point yeah um, they, they've now got the uh, the capital really to 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 invest in a, their own in their own playhouse
0: So why did the Puritans specifically also wanted to be located in this particular space? Were the Puritans not afforded the right to worship or hold services within other parts of the city?
1: No, the fact that the parish, so we've got, we're referring to a liberty, the liberty of Black Friars or the precinct of Black Friars, but we're also in the parish here of St. Anne's Black Friars. Okay, so after the Reformation, again, because of who inherits or acquires the land and property, the Carden, Sir William Moore, and then his son, because the fact that they are sort of godly Protestants, you know, they're, they're very zealous, serious Protestants, that gives them the right to appoint clergymen and ministers and preachers. So that's really why the Black Friars develops a kind of Puritan or godly Reputation. And there are only two main ministers there in the Blackfriars from the 1560s all the way up to the late, much later in the 17th century a man called Stephen Edgerton. And he was succeeded by an even more famous godly preacher called William Googe. And these two guys sort of dominate the religious life of the parish. But they're, got to remember, they're appointed by these lay freeholders. Or the, the, I think Moore and Corden are re, referred to as the as being the lords of the land and soil of the Black Friars. They, it's sort of their their bailiwick, their jurisdiction. So that there's nothing inherent in the fact that this is a um, a sort of a, a a liberty with with these um, exemptions from various taxes and various responsibilities that attracts the Puritans. It's the it's the lay landowners and freeholders there their their religious orientation the fact that they bring in these ministers and then of course the par- parishioners follow people come to live there i think because they want to be part of this parish they want to be part of this godly community as it's seen and you've also got to remember that religious life is not regulated by the lord mayor not regulated by the city not regulated by the alderman it's the responsibility of the ecclesiastical authorities and so Certainly, um, Stephen Edgerton and William Googe do get in trouble with the with their bishop, the Bishop of London, and with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they are, as far as we know, there are at times they're suspended, they're disciplined, uh, they're fined, but they but as as what I call partial, semi, or occasional conformists, they manage to hang on to their posts, and they manage to basically. Succeed in um, you know promoting their zealous godly agenda in the Black Friars. Plenty of people complain about them. Plenty of other ministers in London complain about Edgerton and then later Googe because they're seen as drawing away parishioners and sermon goers from other parishes. They're so popular. These two these two Puritan ministers are so powerful and so charismatic that they actually. Uh, draw away what are known as sermon gadders that is people who will move around the capital to hear the best sermons so this creates a lot of tension and animosity with other preachers who aren't quite as you know popular and as i say charismatic
0: i think this is really a surprising dichotomy for a lot of shakespeare fans or people s- hearing about this part of shakespeare's life for the first time is why would Shakespeare want to put a theater right in the middle of this Puritan hotbed? I mean, especially what we know later when the Puritans were so opposed to theater and had such a negative opinion of performance and and playhouses like the Globe, certainly. Why would Shakespeare and the Burbages think, oh, let's go put our theater right in the middle of people who hate us?
1: I just think the location of the theater and the sort of the economic advantages it offered would have outweighed any fear of animosity from these godly neighbors. But clearly, Burbage miscalculated. I mean, they—you know—Burbage and James Burbage, and then you know, with with sons Richard and Cuthbert, and with you know, with Shakespeare and the and the other people who were involved—that they they certainly miscalculated. That they did not expect this petition to the Privy Council. They did not expect the Privy Council to approve of the petition to block the opening of the theatre because they'd made this massive investment. And you know, it, th- and it th- threw their plans into, um, into crisis. Because it what was a subs- substantial that,
0: that... amount of money, as you mentioned earlier. It wasn't like a little bit. There was, they paid a lot for this site.
1: Right, there's the money. And then by, then a few months after they've paid that money, they realize that the um, renegotiating the lease on the theater is getting nowhere. So they're going to end up with no venue. That's when the globe comes into the picture. OK, it's 1599. So it's after they've been blocked from actually using this new theater. So and we don't by the way, we don't we don't know how much they spent converting it because those seven rooms were by 1596, they were domestic residences, right? They were basically apartments or flats. I mean, pre- pretty high-end, very nice places to live. But the partitions between those seven rooms were knocked down to convert it into this one large room, into the theatre. We don't know how much that that cost them. And then they're, then they're blocked from using it in 1596 indefinitely. And then in 1597, there is clear their lease isn't going to be renewed on the theatre, so what do they do? That's when we have the whole sort of adventure with taking apart the theater, transporting the timbers across the Thames and erecting this new amphitheater that we know is the Globe.
0: Which I always thought the story of them taking it down and moving it across the river in horrible conditions seemed like an amazing feat to do at all. But when you understand the story of what was going on with the Blackfriars and the real risk the entire company was facing of of their income, their profession, just drying up from underneath them and not being able to continue forward, all because of the space, it makes their willingness to do something that risky make so much more sense. This was literally their Hail Mary of we've got to make this work. And this is the only wood and timber that we own. So we're going to we're going to make this work
1: exactly, and so from going from the prospect of having two theaters—an outdoor theater in the you know up in Shoreditch that you could use in the spring and summer—and then rotating into this this new smaller but very you know very comfortable enclosed space in the Blackfriars in the winter and the Caldermans, going from that vision to suddenly having nowhere to play was a you know was a real crisis for the company.
0: Well, was. Shakespeare and the Burbages' idea for an indoor theatre in this section of London, was is this the first time that someone had tried to put a theatre in this section of, of the city, or were there other playhouses? You mentioned earlier that the authorities had the right to decide how many were going yeah. to appear where. Was this the first time this had been
1: tried? No. In fact, there it, the, the Blackfriars Theatre we're talking about, that is the connected with the Burbages and Shakespeare, this is the second Blackfriars Theatre. In that same Western Range, an earlier theatre had operated between 1576 and 1584. We call that the first Blackfriars Theatre. We we know a lot less about it. Now, it was in the northern part of the Western Range rather than the southern part, which is where the Burbage rooms were. And this was a a theatre that was owned and run by the master of the royal choristers, choir boys, a man called Richard Farrant. And he, as a a kind of their their tutor, their schoolmaster, and their uh, in loco parentis figure, you know, he'd been looking for quite a time for a permanent base for these uh, royal choir boys. And so this is where they live. This is where they train. This is where they take their lessons. But they also put on commercial plays starting in 1576. So it's a it's a boys' theatre, and it's putting on we think very oca- occasional plays, maybe one or two a week at most. Um, then ma- remember the main responsibility of the boys is to sing in the Queen's chapels, to so, so sing in the Royal chapels. These boys, the Blackfriars uh, choristers, they they did perform plays uh, at court for the Queen and for you know her her guests mostly around Christmas time and Shrove Tide, And so, in a sense, the, uh, the plays that they performed in, the, in their Blackfriars space were kind of re- dress rehearsals, as it were, for the big shows, the big performances at court for an elite invited audience. But I think if you were one of the people who were lucky enough to go and see the boy choruses perform a play for money in their Blackfriars space, in, in a sense, you, you were getting a taste of what it was like to be a member of this court elite. Because you're 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 seeing the same kind of entertainment in a, the similar kind of hall like conditions that the Queen's guests would have watched the play you know at Whitehall or Greenwich or somewhere like that
0: Do we know why those same group of people were fine with the boys' choristers being there or inst- what was it about Shakespeare and the Burbages that they disliked so specifically? Was it that it was not children, but it was an adult company, or what was the issue?
1: That's a really good question. By the way, when you say these people, we're talking about the petitioners, right—the people who Correct. signed up- the people and that went to the Privy Council and said, "We don't we want know, this." We know the identity of many. Well, we, we know the names, and we also know kind of the the backstories and who those people were. So, for instance, the two main signatories of that petition—well, one was Stephen and this godly minister. And one was Lady Elizabeth Russell, who was a godly gentlewoman, very, very powerful, very opinionated, very strict in her zealous Protestant views. They did not want them. And then there's a lot of other people. And I've traced track and others have figured out who they are, what their sort of religious outlook is, what their professions are, what kind of stake, what kind of stake they had in the culture and economic life of the precinct. But I think the reason for the, that there was no there were no objections or no recorded objections that we know of, no petitions that we know of before 1596 is, as you say, these are boys performing rather than adult men, and are performing occasionally, as I say, once or twice a week. But they've also, they're also royal choristers, so they've got that sort of royal seal of approval, and their theatre is a fair bit smaller. We do know we've got an approximate s- sense of the the size of these uh, of the first and second Blackfriars, and the the, the first Blackfriars Theatre is considerably smaller than the second would have held a much smaller audience. So it just doesn't have the kind of visibility, the kind of footprint in the precinct that the second Blackfriars Theatre has. And I can add here that after Burbage and Shakespeare were blocked from opening. The, the, their second Blackfriars Theatre, right, for the adult Chamberlain's men, what do they decide to do with the, with that prime piece of real estate that they've got? All right, they've got to do something with it, they've got to make money on it, so they lease it to another group of choristers. Clever. Another boys' company. This is now in 1600. The boys' The children of the, the, well, they go by various names. The, the, they are royal choristers. They're also known as the children of the Queen's Rebels, children of the Black Blackfriars. They, have, they, have they operate under various titles. Again, there's no objection, as far as we know, from the residents to the fact that we've now got a, a boys' company performing plays in our precinct. In fact, there are no petitions between 1596 and 1619. And it's fairly clear that there aren't any petitions that we've lost. Because the 1619 petition refers explicitly to the 1596 petition as being the last one, the, the, the earlier one.
0: So There's more than a little bit of snobbery going on, I think, from the town there and the leadership of like, no, that's not good enough to perform here in our
1: section of town. I think for those petitioners in 1596, Edgerton, Lady Russell, and the other, and, and most of the other people on, on that, who signed that petition are fairly well off you know they 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 have an economic stake they have a nice house they're afraid most of all of crowds they're afraid of the of all of these crowds of people who are going to come to the theater bringing with them you know noise disease fears of the plague plague had been rife in blackfriars in 1593 i believe it was a very bad plague year but also most of all fear of disorder you know theater when they think theater in 1596 they're thinking about the the rose on Bankside, the theatre, the curtain up in Shoreditch, and you know there, there's trouble in these places. Wherever you get lots of people, um, sort of mingling in unregulated ways, there's likely to be trouble and disorder, and that's what they fear. And Blackfriars is a very tightly knit community. It's only a, it's basically a five acre site, lots of people living there, crowded, and so the idea is it's just of having this volatile. Uh, institution right in their midst. I mean, understandably, it's quite alarming. They're afraid of the noise. They, in, in their uh, petition, they mentioned the noise from the drums and trumpets that will dis- disturb divine service at the nearby church, at the nearby parish church. So the sort of noise pollution they're worried about. These same complaints that basically all revolve around issues of, of civic order, they're all repeated in the later petitions. What these petitions don't say, and this is really interesting, they they don't object to theatre on religious grounds. They don't say theatre is morally corrupting, theatre is, you know, degenerate, or it's Satan's work, you know, does Satan's work. They don't don't talk about this at all. They're all very, very much sort of secular economic uh, concerns.
0: I like to think it's the 16th century version of people holding a cane in the air and screaming, darn those kids in their rock and roll. That's just, Uh, that's, that's the image I get in my head anyway. Situate us here in this section of London and walk us down the street. What establishments were there as direct neighbors to this part of the Blackfriars that they were using as a theater?
1: Okay, well, let's imagine that we're standing on Ludgate Hill facing east. Looking at St Paul's, and you, you can you can go there today. You're looking at Christopher Wren, St Paul's. It's a different building, but you're in essentially the same place. What you're going to do there, coming up Ludgate Hill, you go through Ludgate, then you're going to make a right turn, heading south, and you're into Blackfriars. But you will need to go through another gate because the Blackfriars is a gated community. It has four gates and a wall around it, and those gates are closed at night and opened in the morning by porters. So it is a very kind of secure, uh, in a sense, a city within a city. So as we walk south, we're on a street called Water Lane. And the first thing you're going to notice is, is this, you know the basic shell, the structure of the old friary, this huge multi-storey stone building. And you're going to notice that several parts of that friary have been converted into grand houses or great houses. The first and the most prominent is the house that belonged to the major landowner, uh, Thomas Carden, and then his heir, Sir William Moore. That's actually where the Friars' conventual church had stood on an an east-west axis, and that's converted into into this beautiful private residence with a kind of uh, enclosed garden that we can't see from the street. As we walk down Water Lane, though, you're going to notice other mansions. You're going to notice Cobham House, Lord Cobham's house, Next door to that, you're going to notice the house of Elizabeth Russell, and then further south still, the house or Hunsden House, all in the Western Range. And as you approach Hunsden House to, on the southern end of the Western Range, you're going to see an opening. And if you walk through that opening, there are various stairs that will take you up to Shakespeare and and the uh, the Burbage's Blackfriars Theatre. In fact, the, uh, Hunsden House and the theatre. Shared a, gen- a general entryway from Water Lane. So Water Lane is a street running north to south down to the River Thames. Okay, and that's so Western Range is on our left-hand side. Now, if we look to the right, if we look east, we're probably going to see the towers of Bridewell Palace. And this is, we're not, we're not, this is outside Blackfriars. It's a clot across the f- west of the Fleet River. Or the Fleet Ditch, but Bridewell Palace had become Bridewell Workhouse by the 1590s. So it was the largest penal institution in London, and we might still see the top of the of the structure because it's a very large building. But we'd certainly hear noises coming from Bridewell Palace: the noise of people being whipped, the noise of people doing heavy labour, breaking stones. There are also um, timber yards. There are lots of workshops that, that these people rent space on the palace grounds. We certainly wouldn't, we probably couldn't see, but we would certainly smell Fleet Ditch, because again, by the 1590s, it's no longer a sweet-smelling river but a filthy open sewer. Lots of complaints in this period from Blackfriars residents who live close to the ditch about the awful smell and the fact that the, um, uh, the, the all the erosion and the accumulation of, of, of dirt. On the bank. So we would, I think our senses would be overwhelmed both by what we were seeing and by what we were smelling and hearing. If we decide to cut across the former cloisters, in other words, if we start heading east, cutting across the middle of the the friary, as it were, and we head east, we might catch a glimpse of various bowling alleys, tennis courts, other sort of dens of iniquity, sites of pleasure. But also, more unusually, the entrance to a glass house. Um, In the vaults, in the crypts, beneath the friary, there was a a glass house making very fine glassware. It was a thriving business. It was very expensive glass. And in fact, some of the tenants in the glass house would pay their rent to the landlord with, with glassware and money. You could also visit the glass house. I'm sure Shakespeare would have visited. Certainly, a Lady Russell's daughter in law, Margaret Hobie, kept a diary, talks about visiting a mother in law in London, going to the glass house. It was quite a thing, quite a, because it was relatively uh, rare new newish technology in London. As you keep going east, eventually you'd come to the parish church, Blackfriars, St. Anne's Blackfriars which we think was built into the old chapter house of the friary. So there are accounts of this church being nothing more than a little room or lodging chamber up a staircase, it's apparently a very small church, and certainly with, within earshot of the entrance to the Blackfriars. They're very, very close together. You would also, if you kept going further east, eventually come to the Eastern Gatehouse. As I said, there are four Guarded gate entries into the precinct, the Eastern Gatehouse, 1613. This is where Shakespeare bought property. It's the only property he bought in London, 1613. So it's so towards the end of his career. We don't know if he ever lived in these rooms above the gatehouse. We don't know what he planned to do with them, to lease them out. And they sort of disappear from the records shortly after Shakespeare's death. They're fascinating because they were occupied in recent memory by uh, Catholic families. and They had tunnels underneath, apparently, that were sort of secret ways of getting out of the precinct if you were being sought after by um, pursuivants, you know, these officers who would pursue Catholics. So for those who would like to claim Shakespeare was a Catholic or in sympathy with Catholics, this uh, this fact it sort of looms large. But yeah, it's, uh, it was a large stone structure with, with rooms above it that Shakespeare at least owned, if not occupied.
0: Amazing to think of his footprint here, not only for the, the theater, but for his property that he owned there as, as well. Really, really neat look at exactly where it was
1: positioned all in this section. I believe that the, the Eastern Gatehouse is marked with a plaque in the Blackfriars today. And by the way, it's well worth going. Two Blackfriars um, and wandering around the, the the lanes and the alleyways, because you do see various signs you know marking where the theater was, where playhouse yard was, and this kind of thing.
0: If I make it back to London, I know I'm going to go down all of these streets for sure. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and about the idea of the Blackfriars and the history that went into Shakespeare and the Burbage's making this decision. So where would you suggest we begin? What are some of your favorite books or resources you can direct us towards if we are diving into this history for the first time?
1: I would direct your listeners to the online map of early modern London, which is a fantastic it's a free resource. And it recreates a map from the 1560s that's attributed to a man called Agus A-G-A-S. And you can zoom in on the map. You can zoom in, you can zoom out. So you can see streets and lanes and very, you know, fine, very, very small features in great detail. But mo- many of the streets, the buildings, the churches, or all, all the different parts of the built environment are linked to essays and to, to glosses telling you what these uh, institutions, places and sites were giving you their history. And it's very much a work in progress. And because there are are hundreds and hundreds of these sites, only fractions so far have been annotated, as it were. It's also great because the map of early modern London has links to primary texts, uh, multiple early editions of John Stowe's Survey of London, for example, There's also work taking place to edit all of the Lord Mayor shows and then to link those to the map so that you could sort of follow the the different processional routes. And finally, I'll just put in a plug for the parish project on the map of early modern London, which I'm actually leading, where we have um, contributors, historians, literary people writing sort of thumbnail sketches of each of the over 100 parishes in the city and linking to original sources about the parishes listing you know famous residents talking about the the religious nature or the religious sort of preferences of the parishioners that kind of thing
0: that's very exciting we i love the map of early modern london website i refer to it a lot for putting myself where i need to be when i'm researching stuff so absolutely we'll link to that in the show notes for today's episode we ask everyone this next question here at that Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
1: Well, I think your friends in England have got very good taste. I would like to say that to start with. <laughs> I would take the King James Bible, I think, and the that's first folio of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. And as you know, I've I listen to your show, and so I've heard this question many times. I've had a long time to think about this, um, and I've decided to go with the collected works of Beaumont and Fletcher. Collected plays of Beaumont and Fletcher, uh, published in um, 1647, so published at a time when there there were no plays being performed in London, at least there were not supposed to be. Theatres had been officially closed 1642. But this is a fantastic folio collection of plays, 35 plays in all, none of them published before. Some of the plays are collaborations between Beaumont and Fletcher. Others are single-authored plays by Beaumont, Fletcher, and by a man called Philip Massinger, another playwright who isn't mentioned in the uh, in the title. And it's full of fantastic plays which are, have not been edited by modern scholars for the most part, and are certainly never performed anymore. Most of them I've, I've never read, so it would keep me certainly keep me busy along with the uh, the Shakespeare Folio and the Bible.
0: Well, I'm flattered that you've done so much prep work for this question and listening to our show, and it paid off because I don't think I've had anyone else select the collected plays of Beaumont and Fletcher here on the show before, but that is an excellent way to spend your desert island time. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Okay, well, I've got a few projects going on. I mentioned the Map of Early Modern London Parish Project, but I'm also working on a separate map, which would be a, a a very, very detailed GIS map of the blackfriars precinct basically trying to reconstruct the neighborhood in at an unprecedented level of detail alley by alley street by street building by building far more detail than any you're going to see on any 16th or 17th century map and it's possible to do this by consulting the in the archives deeds leases property records which give positions and dimensions of various buildings parish records wills uh, surveys of fo- foreign residents or strangers as they were called there's an awful lot of primary evidence that we could use to just sort of recon- reconstruct street by street house by house this precinct so i'm excited uh, about that and then i'd like to have it linked to a database of residents the inhabitants of the precinct over multiple decades
0: that's fantastic. You can go in and click on William Googe and find out what he was doing and, and um, Lady Russell and find out her house and everything. That's fascinating. I can't wait to see that come to fruition. Thank you so much, Chris Hiley, for being here and walking us through the history of the Blackfriars and exactly what it took for Shakespeare to make his mark in this part of the city. I appreciate your time and for sharing your research with us. This has been a fun
1: conversation. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Cassidy.
0: If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. And if you'd like to dive in further to see images and maps and diagrams and so much more history about the Blackfriars, including links to other episodes we've done on our show about Lady Elizabeth Russell specifically, check out the show notes for today's episode. We've included direct links to the resources that Chris mentions in today's episode, along with a couple extra resources he sent us over email after our chat. And you can look at all of these things in the detailed show notes at CassidyCash.com episode 262. That's Cassidy cash.com slash EP two six two. If you like the history of turn of the 17th century England and walking through places like the Blackfriars and exploring exactly what it was like to live the way William Shakespeare would have lived it, then you will enjoy joining us on Patreon. Patrons who support the show get access to behind the scenes extras, including sneak peeks at the research I'm doing behind the scenes to put the episodes together, along with the opportunity to submit your own questions that you'd like to have asked to some of our guests. There's also other resources like classroom bonuses, including ebooks and worksheets and things you can use if you're teaching the podcast in your classroom, as well as some special bonuses just because you're helping support the show. And I really appreciate that. So you can look at all of the bonuses of being a patron of That Shakespeare Life and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.